You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. You're listening to Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The Green New Deal is a program put forth by progressive Democrats calling for fighting the climate crisis and economic inequality simultaneously. In last week's debate, Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden said he does not support the Green New Deal, putting forth his own plan. Joining me is the economist who put together the Green New Deal finance plan, Robert Hockett, a professor at Cornell Law School. His new book is called Financing the Green New Deal, A Plan of Action and Renewal. So, Bob, tell us why you decided to write the book. I've been sort of worried, uh, as I think a lot of people have been worried for at least a decade now, uh, that our financial system has sort of lost touch with its sort of original purposes, uh, at least with some of them, right? I mean, the, the primary purpose of a financial system is to enable productive activity, right? Uh, and insofar as there's speculative activity in the form of betting on price movements and secondary markets or tertiary derivative markets uh, or the like, that's basically in order to enable capital to be lower priced in the primary markets where productive investments to take place. And it seems that what's happened in recent decades in our financial system is that the secondary and tertiary markets have become much more important, much larger in terms of transaction volume or turnover or churn uh, than the primary market cap, um, which suggests that we're less focused on production and productive activity now and more focused on, on gambling, basically on, on speculating as to where prices are going to go. And what's sort of interesting about that fact is if you compare that fact with what the founders of the Federal Reserve seem to have had in mind back in 1913, it would suggest that our financial system is really kind of really way out of whack relative to what the Fed was originally meant to be doing. Um, and so insofar as we see the Fed basically backstopping a system that's primarily about speculation, we see a Fed that is also in some ways, you know, acting outside of its original sort of mandate or at least in manners that are not altogether consistent with that original mandate. So what I've done is I've done a bit of back research on sort of what the founders had in mind, what was being talked about and discussed when the Fed was created. 
And it turns out to be quite fascinating. Um, and it, it kind of, it gives us guidance as to how to bring the financial system back into sort of sync with what it's really originally meant to be and how to bring the Fed back into sync with what it was uh, meant to be. And it also sort of explains certain things about the Fed that are otherwise puzzling. So some people sort of think, well, what is the Fed anyway? I mean, what is it with those? We seem to have these regional Fed banks, and then there's this Fed board in D.C., and what's the relation between them? You know, and people get so confused in some cases that somebody will refer to the Federal Reserve Bank, which, you know, isn't a thing. There is no the Federal Reserve Bank. There's a Federal Reserve Board, and then there are regional Federal Reserve Banks. Tell us then what the founders had in mind. Well, what the founders seem to have had in mind in the first place um, with this sort of two-tier structure was precisely that the regional Federal Reserve Banks would facilitate the free-flowing of credit to productive purposes, startup companies, small businesses, community banks, all the sorts of things you might expect uh, a growing and newly productive or growingly productive economy that's divided into various regions of the whole continent. Uh, to look like, right? And so a big and important activity that those banks did was to what was called discount commercial paper of various kinds issued by, again, small small, small firms and startups and the like. This is why to this day we still call the, you know, the discounting operations that are carried out through Section 13 of the Federal Reserve Act discounting and why we refer to a discount window. But uh, so that was the purpose of those regional debt banks. And then the Federal Reserve Board in D.C., as supplemented 20 years later by a newly created uh, FOMC in the 30s, uh, was designed to kind of oversee credit aggregates nationwide to basically prevent there from being an excess of credit money in the economy, which can be inflationary. But also, of course, to counteract deflationary pressures when there's uh, when there are contractions, which of course is what QE is about. And so, what we seem to have right now is we seem to have retained the sort of aggregative mission of the Fed board, or what I call the credit modulatory mission. The Fed's pretty good about adjusting the money supply, right, and counteracting deflations and counteracting inflation, for that matter. It's pretty good with that modulatory task, as I call it. But we've completely dropped the allocative task. Right? We're just not doing allocation in the way that the uh, regional Fed banks were meant to do. So finally, the final point I'll make here, then the punchline here, is that these new facilities that the Fed has just opened up as of April to deal with the pandemic, notably uh, the Municipal Liquidity Facility, or MLF, which is run out of the New York Fed, and then the so-called Main Street Lending Program that's run out of the Boston Fed, I think this is a wonderful opportunity, in effect, to rediscover and reinstitute that original mission uh, that the Federal Reserve regional banks had. Um, but we would only be able to do that if we change a couple of things about the way we're running those programs right now. So right now, as you know, MLF is there to help out small town cities and states across the union that are having difficulty dealing with the pandemic fallout. It's odd then to be running it out of just the New York Fed. And I used to work there and lots of my old friends and colleagues who I used to work with are still there. And I think they're the most brilliant and the most serious public servants in the country. I mean, they're amazing and wonderful people, but there's a fairly small number of them. And the thought that they should be given uh, or sort of saddled with the responsibility of determining the real credit needs or otherwise of Peoria and Oahu and Billings, Montana, from right here in lower Manhattan seems a bit much, right? It doesn't seem good for the program. It doesn't seem good for the cities and states. And it doesn't seem good for the Fed personnel themselves or with the FRBNY. Similar story when it comes to the Main Street Lending uh, Program, which is a set of several facilities run out of the Boston Fed. Now here too, right? I mean, again, the Boston Fed folk are wonderful. I've worked with a good many of them in the past. And there's just, this is not meant in any way to kind of question their capacities or abilities. 
But why would Boston um, be handling uh, the financial needs of, you know, uh, Nick's Nails in, in, in Los Angeles or uh, Harriet's uh, tractor repair uh, in Fargo, Dakota? You know, I mean, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, and what we have here, it seems to me, is a golden opportunity to sort of redistribute um, the sort of regional Fed banks' original functions to the regional Fed banks, right? So the San Francisco Fed would handle both Main Street lending and MLF funding uh, out west in the, in the northwest, and the Dallas Fed would handle it in the southwest, and the Atlanta Fed would handle it in the southeast, and so on. And this, I think, would bring the regional Feds back into you know, sync with their original missions. It would optimize these programs, which we now have, but which are not operating very well, precisely because they're all concentrated in a couple of Fed banks in the northeast. And it would also basically uh, give us an opportunity to sort of re- reorient ourselves and our Fed, our central bank, to the task of productive lending and productive investment rather than merely speculative investing and speculative lending. Because what happens in New York, which the New York Fed looks over, is mainly that. And that's fine. That's what's supposed to happen in New York. But we don't want you know all of the credit of the country to be going towards speculative um, betting in New York, when you have real credit needs out in South Dakota or out in Arizona or where have you, so so that's basically what I what I've been sort of putting out there. That's the I've been using a shorthand for this a slogan. I call it spread the Fed, but we could just as well call it re-spread the Fed because that was sort of the original purpose in the first place. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. So let me ask you a basic question. You know, when you talk about the Constitution, you have the originalists or the mm-hmm. textualists. So is this sort of an originalist kind of theory? You're going to go back to what the Fed was? Has the Fed been evolving into what the country needed? So I think in a, in a certain sense, both, right? My view is that the as far as the modulatory task goes, right? In other words, as far as the oversight of national credit aggregates is concerned, the Fed has evolved into what has been needed. And furthermore, that was actually foreseen by the framers themselves of the Federal Reserve Act. It's, it's, it's precisely why they didn't make the Fed simply a bunch of regional banks, but they put a single board on top of them all, right? So if you think of the apex of the system, or say tier one of the system, the Federal Reserve Board in D.C., that is indeed meant to be looking over you know, credit conditions nationwide and modulating our credit aggregates to prevent inflation on the one hand and deflation on the other. And, you know, it didn't do that extremely well in the first years after its founding. And indeed, it kind of spectacularly failed in the 20s and early 30s in doing that. But some additional reforms that we added on, and notably the Federal Open Market Committee uh, in the early 1930s during the New Deal, have sort of optimized it and made the Fed board essentially more able to do even what the framers themselves wanted to do. And again, I applaud it out the wazoo when it comes to that kind of thing, right? I, I don't applaud Greenspan, but I think Bernanke and Yellen and Jay Powell have been absolutely masterful in their use of that functionality. And the same goes for William McChesney Martin, who was the Fed chair back in the 60s and 50s, right? Um, so we've had, and Werner Eccles, of course, during the uh, during the Great Depression was a terrific um, Fed chair. But, but what we've lost sight of, what we sort of let disappear 
was what what I'm calling tier two was meant to do, and that's the regional debt banks. Um, my research assistant actually put it really best recently. I just I laughed out loud. It was so good. We were talking together about the regional debt banks, and she said, don't they just write papers and stuff? And I, <laughs> I just burst out laughing. I said, yeah, that is exactly what they do. They write papers and stuff, unless it's the New York Fed, which has more operational um, uh, responsibilities. Um, but the thing is, the thing to remember is they write papers and stuff for original purposes that they were created to discharge. And the fact is that they're not being used to discharge those purposes now. And if they were being used in that way, these research papers that they're putting together would actually have a a great deal of use, right? Um, And they would actually, I think, make the system work better, right? Another way to say this, that it's sort of key to the way that you framed the question, is to say that the things that have changed since the Federal Reserve Act's passage are such that they have made it important to kind of fine tune and optimize the Federal Reserve Board at the top of the system. And we have thankfully done that. But things that have changed over the last hundred years since 1913 also suggest ways that we could optimize tier two of the system, the regional Federal Reserve Banks. And a big part of that optimization, I think, is to recover that original vision, so to speak, or that original mission uh, that they were meant to have, which was to facilitate um, actual productive investment in different regions of the country that have different economies. Tell us about how you got involved and what you've done toward the Green New Deal. Yeah, sure. So the way that happened, it was kind of fun. Um, When uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, won her election in November of 2018, about two years ago. Um, she had been working with a group uh, called New Consensus that was sort of part of a movement uh, to sort of discover and help bring to national attention really great minds and energetic young uh, political figures uh, like Alex, like uh, like the congresswoman. Um, and the head of this group uh, was married, it still is, uh, and his spouse uh, had been a student of mine uh, in the recent past. Uh, and so when it came time to draft uh, the Green New Deal resolution and then to work on other aspects of the Green New Deal, uh, she recommended me uh, to her husband, said that, you know, I guess she overestimated me or liked the classes or whatever. But <laughs> in any event, so they, they reached out and asked if I could help out. Um, with the preparation of the resolution uh, that was, of course, introduced uh, in uh, early uh, February. Uh, And then after that, uh, early February of 2019, I should say, uh, then sort of at the same time, they asked me to write up a sort of a white paper explaining uh, the Green New Deal and sort of to make it clear what the resolution was for and what what it was about. So I wrote that up uh, as well uh, in December and January of 2018-2019. Um, And then starting in March uh, of 2019, they asked if I could put together uh, the finance plan uh, for the Green New Deal. Um, So I just basically threw myself into that with pretty much all that I had uh, and was able to draft up at least the skeleton of a full finance plan uh, within a few weeks uh, and and gave that to them. And they they liked it. Um, And then before long, uh, Paul Griff McMillan, the publishing company, who, to my joy, happened to be the publishers of all of the works of John Maynard Keynes, um, had apparently got wind of the fact that I had written up this finance plan, and they asked me if I'd like to uh, publish it as a monograph or as a book. Uh, and I said, oh, my God, I'd be totally honored. you know." So um, I sort of fleshed it out a little bit more, um, added a little bit to it, um, filled it out a bit more, um, and turned it into a monograph. And that was you know, happily published 
um, a couple of months ago, I guess, um, just the very beginning of, of August, it sort of came out officially. And that basically lays out a whole plan uh, for how to finance the Green New Deal. And that, in turn, includes a great deal of sort of structural tweaking, you might say, of our financial system. It sort of changes no more and no less than has to be changed. Basically, what it does is it sort of adds connecting lines, you might say, uh, between various public and private financial institutions that we already have. Bob, what's your take on the National Investment Bank proposals? I think one thing that we see going on right now, um, in Congress especially, but also more broadly, is there's a, a heightened discussion underway of the problem or the need for national investment in a big way. And so there are a lot of sort of national investment bank proposals that are now being considered in Congress, probably about 10 or 12 of them uh, that I can count that, are, that have been offered by various members of Congress. The idea would be something kind of like the European Investment Bank, some kind of a national uh, development bank. Um, I think that if we got the Fed right, it could be that development bank that we were meant to have or that we should have. But it, that would involve having the regional banks, again, reclaim that old mission. Um, so when I say sort of spread the Fed, in a way, I'm also addressing uh, those people who are talking about the need for national investment. Uh, the other thing kind of collateral to this or sort of complementing this that's in the book um, is something I call for, I'm sorry, call for called a National Reconstruction and Development Commission. It's a kind of FSOC-like body that would basically just combine all of the cabinet-level executive agencies of, of our government into one council that would basically plan national development strategy on a regular basis, and they would regularly update national development strategy in the same way that the Department of Defense uh, every year updates national defense strategy. Because I think we made the terrible mistake that's actually connected to the mistake of losing the original mission of the regional bed banks when we decided that development is something that's like a one-off thing. You know, you're undeveloped, and then you flip a switch, and you're developed, and that's it. I think that development is forever. Development is continuous. Development is perpetual. In the same way that technological development is perpetual, right? I mean, we don't just sort of have no technology and then have technology and that's it. Technology is continually evolving. And it seems that national development, which is sort of short for shorthand for national technological development, should be perpetual too. And so we need some way of, I think, publicly and comprehensively considering and planning national development strategy. And so what I call an FSOC for continuous public investment or an FSOC for continual national investment um, would be a good idea. That would be a, a, a nice ancillary body uh, to work in tandem with this newly spread Fed, as I'm calling it. If we do that, I think we can really solve pretty much every major problem that we've had of a financial or economic nature you know, over the last 50 years. And if we do that, I think we'll solve a lot of our social and political problems, too, because they're all rooted in the economic ones. That's Robert Hockett of Cornell Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso. You're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.